There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's Jack, a.k.a. Ted Trunk, and I welcome you all to a very special Discrimination in Football edition of Rule the Roost podcast. You've probably seen or heard myself or Raj over the past few weeks discussing the topic either on Twitter or on a previous episode of the podcast, and we just thought that instead of spouting conjecture into the void, um, that the podcast itself could provide a fitting platform to those working hard behind the scenes and in the public eye to combat discrimination in football. Um, I've got to give a very special shout out to Raj on this one because he's worked tirelessly, really, to pull this together. Um, and he's secured us some really great guests. So without further ado, I'll let them do the talking um, and cut straight first to Mr. Troy Townsend, who is not only the father to our very own Andrus Townsend, but is the Education and Development Manager for Kick It Out. Troy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for, for being on with us. Pleasure. Um, as you know, we, we're just wanting to explore discrimination in football as a whole. Mm. Could you just explain to us what you exactly you do at Kick Out and what your role is? Um, yeah, I'm the Education and Development Manager, um, and the role is, is quite broad, to be totally honest. Um, in the terms of the education part of it, um, it's working with football league scholars, just trying to... Um, give them a better understanding of equality and diversity within the game, uh, you know, within their change room environment. That word banter comes up quite a lot, so we, we speak quite specifically about that. Um, and it's just really giving them a, a better understanding. You know, young players today um, have to realise that it's not all about playing on the pitch and there's a high focus on the game. And they need to understand that they are role models as well. So um that part of my work is really enjoyable you know affecting young players and and making them you know really understand the game away from the playing side of it um is good in terms of the development side which is part of the mentoring program that i run um it's about helping um underrepresented groups individuals um find their pathway within the working environment of of football as well you know everyone talks about you know, the lack of representation from, you know, the black and ethnic minority people, uh, people from an LGB background, women in the game, um, people of disability. Um, and so I put on events to try and, you know, support um, those people and, and trying to get them kind of on the pathway, on the journey of, of a footballing career, whether it be through media, um, coaching, you know, if you just want to coach within your local community and you just want a better understanding um, administration side of the game, sports science. So, you know, we hold events where we get professional people from, 
you know those areas who who have got a journey and, and have been on part of a journey and now in you know in high profile positions and we get them to advise and mentor um and offer placements and and, and working opportunities as well that all sounds brilliant it sounds like very valuable work yeah something so. something that um i think is often misunderstood with kick it out is People often think it's, it's a company only focused on on tackling racism, but it's, it's it's discrimination on a whole. As you say, it's it's females in the game, it's LGBT groups, it's yeah. it's everything. There is is that something you feel that you you need to get across more that it's not only racism that's yeah, a problem in football. I think we do. You know, most incidents. If if you're going to highlight most incidents, most incidents are going to be of a racial nature. Um, and those are the ones that are really out there in the public eye and, and, and what people, you know, pass comment on. But like you say, there's all other forms of discrimination as well. And, and at the end of our 20th year last year, we launched, we basically rebranded and launched a new um, logo that, you know, effectively took out the word uh, racism and added discrimination into it. So tackles all forms of discrimination. And I think it's more reflective of the organisation as we are now. Um, and it also helps people understand um, what we are as an organisation and the fact that we do work right across the board with the organisations that we've mentioned before as well in, in tackling um, you know, the kind of discrimination that unfortunately is growing ever more in our game and growing more in society, I should say. Um, you know, it, it helps to know that Kick It Out is a brand, but we always need to raise awareness um, and we always need to let people know that we are here. Although we're only a small organisation, we work right across the 92 um, professional clubs, dipping into the non-league game as well. We have a professional engagement manager that works individually with players. Um, and there's a lot more scope to what Kick It Out does than what the ordinary individual would probably would probably recognise. Yeah, I think most people are only aware of it because of the, the T-shirts the players are seen wearing and things like that. Yeah, well, there's always a focus on that because T-shirt gate back two years ago when you know a number of players refused to wear the T-shirts, for a little while that was a real testing time for the organisation. But after that, there was a, a better understanding of, of, of what we do. There's also a better understanding of the resources that we have available and the funding that is put into the organisation as well. And, and after that, many people came out and were more reactive to, or more positive towards the work that kick it out that we do here. So, you know, out of a negative came a real positive, and it and it's meant that we've been able to, you know, get a couple more members of staff in as well. You know, particularly um, we've got a reporting officer in here now who um, her work is amazing. Um, it means that we can now put stats out and we can really affect the game at all levels. Um, and also build confidence into people reporting um, incidents out there now into our you know organisation. We've got an app as well, and all these things really brings kick it out right into the, the focus of, of of the game itself. What reasons did did the players give that didn't want to to wear the t-shirts? Um, there was a couple of reasons. One, I think uh, there was this little campaign against the t-shirts in terms of uh, individual players thinking that. That's all that we were about, um, asking them to wear a T-shirt, uh, you know, for one game in a two-week period because it used to be the weeks of action. It was used to be called weeks of action, um, and that was in between October. And everyone thought that the focus was just on making sure that we, they had some snaps taken um, with our T-shirts, and then, you know, for the rest of the time between August and September and November and May, that, that kick it out weren't interested in players. Um, so I think that was one of the biggest biggest reasons why um, 
you know, players chose to do that. And again, I put it down to a lack of understanding of who we are as an organisation. We've made some steps since that time to, to really turn the focus into an all-season campaign. So we're now, in, in terms of what we do, we're now into a season of action where clubs can pick any you know, game throughout the course of their season for us to, to dedicate their work to us. Um, and so we've moved on from that. And it's meant that also that we've been able to, like I said, to employ a reporting officer, but also a professional engagement manager as well, player engagement manager, who works closely with the players to give them a better understanding of the work that Kick It Out can do and also to, to, to get them in as, and being ambassadors for the organisation as well. Um, you mentioned statistics. Have you got any any that you know of how many cases of racism or, or discrimination are actually reported to yourselves a season just to try and give an idea of well, the, the, the landscape we're dealing with here the biggest stats we've got is that there's been a 265% increase um, in terms of reports into the organisation um, and for me that, that is massive people will, will see that as quite worrying um, in terms of, wow, there's that amount of, of you know, incidents that are being reported into the campaign. But for me, that is a positive. That shows awareness. It shows understanding that we are you know, the reporting campaign that, that can affect the kind of you know, incidents that are being reported into us, move those incidents onto the FA, um, and, and make sure there is some outcomes out there as well. Um, in terms of the individual stats, I mean, I can get those over to you. I can I can let you know in terms of what is, um, you know, being reported as racial incidents and and, and others as well. Um, and it just makes the organisation, I think, more creditable in the game. So, in terms of types of discrimination, if we're going to go on to race, 67% um, um, of incidents reported are of a racial nature. Um, 16% of a homophobic nature and also a nature of faith um, and 1% for other. Um, now that in itself for me, you know, as much as what people probably don't like to hear those figures um, and that's throughout the professional game, people don't like to hear those figures. It is a real positive because it means that we can act um, quicker and we can obviously um, make sure that the relative authorities as well um, understand that you know there is still a need and a want and a must for for our organisation. There will be some people out there who see race and football as two things that are mutually exclusive. They'll they'll present the argument that once somebody's entered a football ground, they're just a, a fan of football rather than a, a member of any sort of minority. They're a fan of whichever club they choose to be. But the issue of inclusion, the the issue of people feeling welcomed and feeling safe while they're in the ground is something that, that's still brought up today. Do you think that's the that's the end goal for, for a company like Kick It Out? It's to try and make sure that no matter what anybody's personal preferences is and what, what colour their skin is, when they enter a football ground, they feel safe and welcome to do so? Well, that's probably a, a big thing as well that we're trying to produce at the moment. We're working with um, FSF um, and in working with FSF, which is the fans' organisation, what we want to do is exactly what you said, show fans that the game is inclusive. Unfortunately, there's a story that society at the moment, you know, I think we're on a downward spiral with, with, with incidents that go on in society, and a, a lot of people that come in through the turnstiles are bringing what happens in the outside world into the football ground, um, and that's a story for the authorities to have to deal with. The fact that we are working so closely with FSF and have created this 
organisation fans for diversity means that we we're really taking it seriously about the you know the wants and needs of the fans nowadays. Um, you know, it would be great to go back to the days of, of, of you know families turning up to games and not having to worry about you know where they sit in a, in a stadium or, or who they support, because really football should be for everyone, and we want to make sure that those that are coming to the games are enjoying what's on show. And you know, I've been to some grounds where I would worry about taking my children there, um, and I can imagine that other parents do the same thing. But it, it's not just about that. It's about you know whether you are of colour, whether you uh, you know have a particular faith. It doesn't matter. We want people to be able to go into grounds and feel confident that they can go and support their local team without any kind of of, of abuse or, or attack happening to them on their way as they're leaving, on particularly within the, within the um, within the ground environment. One thing I wanted to ask you more specifically about as well was the, the fact that we've got 92 professional league clubs at the moment and we've only got one black or ethnic manager we've at Huddersfield two, Town and Chris got, Powell. We've got two at the moment, Keith Curl at Carlisle as well. And um, with those two there, it, it's still an unrepresentative amount in, in society of how many people work within the game. Do you think there's, there's more work to be done in that, in that area? There's always more work to be done. You know, at the end of the day, the, the percentage of of uh, players from an ethnic background that are playing within our leagues at the moment is is nigh on thirty percent. So it means that the fact that we've only got two percent representative as managers, there's a lot of work to do and a lot of work still to be done. There are a lot of good initiatives out there at the moment. Uh, the FA do a coaching bursary, which allows. Um, you know, coaches from the BME community to, to basically go through their coaching badges. Um, there's a non-board program that works around governance. So it means that there is things that, that are happening to put kind of like the the community, to upskill the community. And if we're upskilling them, it means that hopefully eventually we're turning around to make them more employable. I think the stat is incredible in this day and age that there only is, you know, t two managers out of 92 but there's a lot of work to be done around that. We need to affect the boardrooms, and the boardrooms will then affect the status of managers. And it's a whole process that unfortunately won't happen overnight, but it's reality. And the fact that there is a lot of work going on and around that whole process to make it more reflective, um, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, will be shown by more managers from those, from those particular backgrounds actually managing within the game, coaching within the game, representative in the boardrooms within the game as well. The, the example we're often given is from American sports and NFL where they have the, the Rooney rule involved. There's been a lot of discussion about that recently. Is that something that you would, you would see as an improvement on the, the current situation if there were to be a rule in place that would give the, the BME community a chance to, to interview for every management position that becomes available? Uh, there's two trails of thoughts there. Um, one, the Rooney rule as it stands in the NFL wouldn't work in, in British football, um, but we, have to, we would have to adapt some kind of rule. Um, we need to make the boardrooms more inclusive. We need to make sure that the process um, of hiring managers is different. Um, it's, it's a big issue at the moment because, like we say, with, with the fact that there's only 2%, of, of black and ethnic managers in the game, it causes a problem. Um, how we identify and how we put that in place, football needs to be more open. 
football needs to be more open. I'm not quite sure football wants to be more open. Um, football wants to be more open in that kind of environment. Um, it needs to embrace the fact that when they sack a manager, there is a process in place um, to be able to make sure that there's the applicants who apply for the job um, are given the right kind of opportunity to then be shortlisted and then from shortlisting to then get an interview. Unfortunately, at the moment, what we have normally is a manager getting sacked and the next day another manager being put in place, which means that the clubs have already identified who they want um, and then the opportunities for others um, actually are being closed. Um, so whether it's a Rooney Rule type thing or whether it's something that the, the, the game itself develops over here, we always seem to be jumping on the back of of other countries' ideas, so whether it's something that we want to do here, we need to start sticking to the laws, and, and at the moment, football doesn't stick to employment law, um, football doesn't stick to the fact that, you know, boardrooms need to be more reflective, the game needs to be more inclusive, um, and we've got some way to go at the moment in terms of turning those heads around and those mindsets around, but like I said to you, I think that we're, we're on our way to trying to do it. A lot of the work goes underground and people don't notice it. That's why it gets criticised a lot. But there is a lot of good work going on out there that will try and make the game more reflective of, of you know, the footballing society at the moment. Brilliant. Um, just before we, we leave you, um, is there any way if, if somebody would feel to want to, to get involved with an organisation to yourself to, to volunteer or to aid in any way? Is there any way of which you can, you can tell us how to, how to get involved? Well, well, I'm the right person to talk to because I have a placement programme at Kick It Out that, that tries to help people get placed within different organisations, so the FA, the Premier League, um, various football clubs as well. Um, so we have that uh, in place. We also have kind of like placements here at Kick It Out. Um, you know, if people were to come through to me as well, they could, you know, get interviewed and that for a placement at Kick It Out. And we have an event that's coming up in two weeks' time, um, which is solely around uh, women in football, and it's to try and provide those opportunities as well. So it's it's called Raise Your Game. Unfortunately, it's at West Ham Football Club, and I know as Tottenham people, you might not appreciate that, but. It's, the club has been very um, open to us to put in on an event like this. And again, it supports the under-representation of, of women um, and trying to get them a focus where you know, they can see that there are plenty of opportunities within the game and seek advice just on that. Um, how, how would somebody get in touch with yourself then? Is it, is it over Twitter or email? So, well, you can do either. I mean, my email is, is just simply troy at kickitout.org. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Town 10 The organisation is on Twitter at Kick It Out. Um, and via our website, which is www.kickitout.org. That's excellent. Thanks very much for your time, no Troy. No worries. Um, good luck with everything you do with, with Kick much. It Out going forwards. And we really appreciate as people that, that see the, the, the work that still needs to be done, that, that you're doing some valuable work there. Really appreciate that. Thank you very much. That was Raj talking to Troy Townsend, the Education and Development Manager of Kick It Out. You can find out more about Kick It Out at kickitout.org or by following them on Twitter at Kick It Out. Troy's personal account you can also follow at Towno10. Up next we have Louise Englefield, who has over 20 years of experience having worked with the organisations such as the Gay Healthy Alliance Project, and is a member of the FA's own advisory group in tackling homophobia. She is currently the director of Football v Homophobia, and Raj is speaking to her now. 
Louise, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for giving you your time. No problem. You're the director of, of football against homophobia. What does what does that entail? What does the company do? What is what's your role? Um, well, football versus homophobia is a campaign. It's kind of like a project rather than a company. Um, it was a campaign that was set up uh, by originally by an organisation in Brighton called the Justin Campaign, and um, and my um, organisation Pride Sports uh, took over the campaign a couple of seasons ago. Um, so what that involves is almost everything you can imagine in running a campaign. So anything from um, you know, um, delivering training. Um, we do kind of like quite a lot of training with different people to um, contacting clubs, getting them to get involved in our month of action. Um, also sometimes giving advices around incidents of homophobia, um, for example, um, meeting with fans groups, uh, just, you know, like a, a whole range of different things really. What exactly is it as a company is it that you're trying to tackle and what what would be, if you had to say you had a mission statement or a goal, because it's, it's, a, it's a thing that some people are quite ignorant about, if I'm to be blunt about it, the, yeah. the issue of that some people, given their personal preferences, can go into a football ground and feel uncomfortable in that environment yeah. because the, the people around them aren't as, as educated as perhaps they, they should be in this day and age is, what exactly do you do to, to try and make sure that football is an, is an inclusive uh, place for everyone to be? Well, I think what we're about is a couple of th uh, things. I suppose what we're, we're about is about raising an awareness of the issue, so doing exactly what you said. You know, there's a whole load of people out there um, that don't think, don't understand um, that the things that they say affect people's comfort in the game, you know. Um, they, um, there's a whole load of people, they would just think, oh, this is just, you know, PC nonsense, it's just a bit of banter. Um, and what we're trying to show people is actually uh, words really affect people. They really affect people's enjoyment of football. Um, they really affect people's ability to play football and progress within the game as well. Um, so what we're trying to do is trying to um, make people aware of the issues and start the conversation, really, within football and get people just to talk about the issues. Because um, I think, you know, there are some people who are quite resistant to changing their behaviour. But on the other hand, there's a whole load of people who just haven't been told what the issues are, you know, and I think they're mainly the people we're trying to reach, you know, the people who aren't, you know, incredibly homophobic, but are just joining in with a kind of, you know, a style of, of behaviour and of language, and who actually, if they thought about how that impacted on other people, they might just think about it a bit more. Um, over the past few seasons, there seems to have been a rise in, in club-specific LGBT groups. I think uh, the one at Arsenal, the, the Gay Gooners, I think they're called, have had quite a lot of press. Yeah. Um, there's a, a new one at Tottenham I'm aware of as well. Yeah. Is, is that a positive step that you see, that these clubs are, are starting to support uh, the people within their fan base that, that feel they need to have this sort of supporters group? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think, you know, um, there will be some people, I'm sure, who listen to this um, who will be thinking, oh, why do they need LGBT supporters groups? Why, why can't they just be sort of like joining with the rest of us? And, and I have to say that, you know, all the people I've met from LGBT supporters groups are regular fans um, who want to meet up together around their common experience. And their common experience is that they love football, 
They really want to be involved in their club. They see a need to change football and be part of the campaign against homophobia and, uh, uh, and transphobia and, um, and want to be part of the kind of the, the process and the dialogue to make football more inclusive. And I think those things are just totally to be commended. Um, and I think that um, it's really great that those clubs are becoming more visible because I think one of the reasons that um, homophobia and transphobia uh, persists in the game is because it's never talked about. We always assume, you know, certainly in men's football, every time a man steps on a pitch, we just assume that he's heterosexual. Um, we don't often think about um, uh, LGBT fans, for example. And yet, you know, there are, I, I personally know loads of LGBT fans, uh, you know, who've got a, who, who, who turn up to games week in, week out, or, you know, pay their... Um, you know, satellite subscriptions or whatever, you know, so that they can, they can, you know, they can follow their team. Um, so I think it's great that those people have come together and, and want to make a difference. Um, one thing that I was, I was wanting to ask you as well is, although I'm, I'm not homosexual myself and I, I've never yeah. experienced it from that side, yeah. it seems that, that society as a whole seems much more inclusive towards the, the LGBT, LGBT groups. And, you know, there's, there's much more people coming out. It's a much more socially acceptable thing, um, not that it ever shouldn't have been. Yeah. But it, it, it seems to have gone that way in general society. But it seems yeah. that, that football and perhaps even sport as a whole seems a few steps removed and a few steps back from that. Um, is there anything that, that you can put your finger on as to the why that might be? Well, I think um, one of the things... Um, one of the things about sport in general, I think, is that sport can be quite inward-looking. Um, so um, um, outside of the football versus homophobia campaign, we also work in different areas of sport. And what happens is that you have um, a culture in sport where people who do really well and succeed in sport go into management, you know, go onto councils and boards, um, and we've been really slow within sport to think about the need to include people from outside of sport to uh, get involved in the governance of, um, of uh, you know, um, of our our kind of sports, of our uh, you know, of our you know, recreational activities. So we haven't had that kind of external view. And of course, if something um, you know, if structurally something comes from a particular time and, and can be quite homophobic, and then you don't have any kind of like, you know, you don't have anybody outside of that environment looking in going, hey, do you know what, guys, actually, you've got a bit of work to do here around making it inclusive, then it becomes self-perpetuating. So I think that's one of the reasons that sport, you know, and football more particularly um, has been... Um, has been a bit slow on the uptake because, um, you know, because there isn't a level of scrutiny within the governance, um, uh, you know, of, of the game, really. And, and there aren't people, there haven't been people until recently who were saying, hang on, you know, actually, there's a whole sort of like 7% of the population here that we're, you know, potentially really missing out on because we're not making football as inclusive as it could be. Um, 
Do you think that the authorities within football then are actually starting to take that more on board? Because the way in which I actually I came across your company and the work you did was I went through the Premier League's website and the oh, fact right. that a company that large has got a link to yourself on their website is that is that something you see as a positive? Is that is that work that you're trying to do to influence the people who influence the game top down as well as working with people at grassroots? Is that is that as important to to change the culture up there as it is? Um, for young people coming through? Yeah, of course it is, because at the end of the day, it's the people at the top who have the most power to make the change for the young people. Um, so um, we, you know, um, we are, we try to be really um, a really positive campaign and we try and work in a positive way with the football authorities because, um, you know, they're important stakeholders and they have the capacity to make some real difference and make, make, make some real change in the game. So, yeah, you know, uh, we work with the Premier League. Um, we're really pleased to work with them um, and they've supported the campaign now uh, since it started. So, so that's great. But we also mustn't forget that, you know, the people at grassroots are also really important. So, you know, within kind of professional football, that's the fans and they're really, really important. And within wider football, within the kind of playing arena, you know, those are the people who turn out and play, you know, Sunday league football in this country, um, talking to them, uh, educating those people, you know, educating the people who run grassroots clubs, um, especially clubs for young people, um, and talking to them about the importance of creating an inclusive environment. Because if we don't, then we risk losing a load of young people from, you know, from a sport that is our national sport and that, you know, millions of people love. How many reports of that do you get? How many reports do you get from from people who are, who are LGBT and, and they're wanting to access the game as either a, a fan or a player or a coach? Do you, do you get many reports of that here? Do you have any sort of a figure or a round <coughs> sum of... of how how large a, a complex issue that is um no um no we don't we we um i know that um you see i can't remember the um statistics which is a bit bad isn't it but um i know that um kick it out did some research last season into experiences of professional footballers um are on at training grounds um and on pitches and in in you know changing rooms around um homophobic language and i can't remember what the percentage was but you know they you know professional players were still reporting levels of you know um of of homophobic language um in the game um a few years ago stonewall did some research called Leagues Behind, and they found like really quite high levels of um, homophobia, um, you know, um, sort of homophobic language um, amongst fans and also um, amongst grassroots players as well. So I'm sorry, you'll have to go. <laughs> you'll have to go and look at what the actual figures are because I can't remember them off the top of my head. But you know, there is research out there that does show that. Um, you know, that there is, is a need to be met, you know, and that doesn't mean to say that things aren't changing. You know, in my experience, things are starting to really change. And it, it just in the last couple of years have gained momentum massively around this issue. Um, and that's all good stuff, but we're not there yet. Um, you, you touched on professional footballers there. Um, yeah. 
I think I'm right in saying that currently I don't think there's anybody who's openly gay within any of the the top leagues, especially within this country. I think the the footballers that have come out have, have since retired from the game or gone elsewhere. Uh, off the top of my head, there was there was Robbie Rogers who played for Leeds, yeah. and and Thomas Hitzelberger who played uh, Aston Villa, West Ham, Everton. I think off the top of my head. Um, do you, do you think it would be a massive like a a turning point for the campaign and for for the publicisation of this if there were to be a top-level footballer who would feel comfortable enough in the environment they're in to to play the game at the highest level and be openly gay at the same time? Um, You know, that's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because what we say um, in our campaign is what we're trying to do is create an environment within football so that a player feels that they could come out if they wanted to. You know, that's what it's about. It's a responsibility of football, not of the players and themselves. But at the same time, um, to kind of dismiss the idea that a player coming out would have an influence would be ridiculous. You know, I, I think if we if a player came out in the game, yeah, you know, that's gonna that's got to have some impact. You know, you know, we see the the impact of Thomas Hitzelsberger coming out, you know, even though he's retired, and he, that 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 has an impact. But all these kind of you know, change is about, you know, um a dialogue, continuous dialogue, and um, you know, people being challenged and thinking about things and talking things through and thinking, oh well, no, maybe it's not how what I thought it was like. And the thing about um, you know um, top-flight players coming out and you know who are household names is that if we if they come out and then we hear their name and we hear their name and we hear their name and we hear their name. That, that creates more of a kind of potential for change and a potential for discussion than somebody who comes out but then they've retired from the game. Um, but, you know, you know, where we're coming from is that we don't, you know, we think that the responsibility lies with football. We, we've got to create an environment and, um, you know, and the football authorities, all of us, have got to, you know, really, really take it on and create an environment where somebody feels that they can come out because clearly at the moment they uh you know players don't feel that they can come out and stay in the game and you know actually just thinking about that as well it's not just for me that isn't just about football either it's also about like football media as well you know um there are loads of different kind of sides that need to be thought about about players coming out so so for me that's you know that's one part of the story you know there's a whole load of other areas uh, that need to be thought about as well um it's, it's- mustn't forget um, that there's female football as well and and having looked into it at some length I've realised that there's there's a higher level of female footballers in the female game happier to come out and there are a lot more openly female footballers playing at, at the highest level in their game compared to the fact that there's there's hardly any in the, the male environment. Do you think it's between a male and female environment there's there's something there that's that's stopping the, the male footballers from, from doing what several female female footballers have successfully done? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think 
again, it's kind of um, an, an interesting point, isn't it? Because on, on one hand, um, you know, we can look to the women's game and go, oh, look, you know, it's all so sorted. It's all really great in the women's game. But, you know, if you look at Casey Stoney, um, who came out last season, um, and she talks about her experience of coming out, you know, you know, coming out in, in a big way in the media, she said the thing that put her off it was, you know, fear. And she was living in fear for a number of years before doing it and then she had like a really really positive experience around that I think women's football probably creates less of um, uh, um, less challenges for women to come out certainly to their teammates um, and in their kind of like club environment um, I think because, you know, um, I was, you know, I was at a game, um, you, you know, a couple of weeks ago and I heard people uh, shouting, you, you know, I heard somebody shout out something, you know, shout out, go get up your puff. And um, and it wasn't near enough to me to challenge, it has to be said, otherwise I would have waded in. But, um, but you know, I, I think that those kind of, that kind of language and, and some of that kind of like hyper-masculine behaviour um, in football can be homophobic. And I think it can be really a really a much more difficult environment for men um, than it can be for women, you know, than it could be for women. And, for example, you know, the other issue is, you know, I know that one of the things that's talked about a lot is the role of fans and would fans be, um, you know, um, how would fans uh, respond um, to a player coming out. And I, you can't really imagine, can you, in the women's game, you know, a load of fans turning around and sort of chanting something homophobic because a female player came out. You know, it's just a different environment. And equally, I have to say, you can't really imagine the sports media, you know, hounding, um, you know, a female player who came out. But you still can imagine some aspects of the media doing that with a male player who came out and, and was still playing. So I think it's a complex, you know, uh, issue. Do you think the, the you brought up the, the issue of, of language within ground, do you think that's more down to people having a, a lack of appreciation and a, a lack of education rather than it being a malicious thing? Yeah, yeah, on the whole, mainly I do. And I think, I think you know, we've got to accept, don't we, that we like live in a society where you've got um, some people who've been, you know, exposed to a whole load of experiences and a whole load of different people and um, they tend not to express homophobic views. Then you've got like this group right at the other end of the, the spectrum who are the kind of people who, you know, post horrible homophobic abuse on Twitter and, you know, you're, uh, you, you know, and there are a small group of haters out there, definitely there are, but you've also got this huge middle ground, I think, of people who just, you know, as I said before, really, who just haven't thought about the issues, haven't been exposed to the ideas, haven't thought about the impact of their behaviour. And that's loads of the work that we do, is getting people to stop and think, you know, how would this feel 
feel if it were you, you know, if it were around a different issue, you know, how would you, you know, how would how would you feel if you, you know, when you went to a football ground, you heard stuff that was hateful um, about who you were, you know, would that make you want to be involved in football or would that turn you off to football or would that make you want to hide who you were because you loved football so much you didn't want to give it up, you know? Just before I leave you, Louise, if, if anybody felt the need to to want to get in contact with yourself about anything whatsoever, or or help your organisation, maybe try and volunteer or what have you, yeah. how would they go about trying to do that? Um, the best way to get hold of us is to drop us an email, and that's to info at footballvhomophobia.com. Um, or you can always tweet us if you want, um, and we are at FVH Tweets, um, and we are also on um, uh, uh, Facebook as uh, Football versus Homophobia. I think basically we've got a like page on Facebook. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. But if, if you seriously want to work with us or you want something from us, you want some help or support from us, email us at info at footballvhomophobia.com. Excellent. Thanks very much for your time, Louise. Um, I think it's, it's much appreciated the work you do in the organisation and, and what you're trying to achieve within football. Thanks so very just, much. just good luck with that going forward. Cheers. Thank you. Okay. Thanks very okay. much for your time. Cheers. Bye-bye. That was Raj talking with the director of Football v Homophobia, Louise Englefield. You can find out more about Football v Homophobia at footballvhomophobia.com or by following them on Twitter at FVHTweets. As a former professional footballer, having lifted the FA Youth Cup with West Ham in 1999, Anwar Adin went on to represent a number of clubs, including Sheffield Wednesday, Bristol Rovers, but it was during his time at Dagenham and Redbridge where he became the first British Asian to captain a side in the top four tiers of English football. Since retiring, he has provided equality and diversity training to youth and senior professional footballers and currently works for the Football Supporters Federation as their diversity and campaigns manager. We'll hear what he had to say as Raj spoke with him earlier. Anwar, welcome to the show. Uh, you work for the FSF. Can you explain what you do there for us, please? I am the Football Supporters Federation Diversity and Campaigns Manager, so I work with football supporters nationwide. I'm really looking at making football as inclusive as possible, working around all forms of diversity and discrimination, and working with fans to um, really challenge the barriers that some fans face watching the game that they love. 
Um, you, you do lots of different events and everything like that to, to help promote that um, theme of inclus- inclusiveness. Um, is that a word? <laughs> but um, what, 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 do those, um, what do those events try and, try and achieve? Well, we've got an, a fans initiative fund um, where we kind of give the empowerment to the fans. And, you know, organisations like Kick It Out, Show Racing the Red Card have been working around all forms of discrimination to raise awareness of some of the challenges that fans and individuals may face around discrimination. Um, part of my role is to actually put the onus on the fans and say, look, as fans, what, what can we do to, to raise awareness and help each other and come up with events and ideas that really highlight, you know, that clubs and individuals are all for diversity and have an idea and have an understanding that, you know, fans, especially in this country, are very diverse. We, we have different fans for different religions, different cultures, nationalities. And it's all about you know, really creating a, an inclusive and safe environment. From your um, expertise, and is, is there still an awful lot of work to do before we can happily call football an, an inclusive sport and equal opportunities area for everyone? I think, yeah, I'd have to agree. I think there is still lots of work to be done, but I have to say, you know, I think it's definitely an industry that's vastly improving, and I think that is down to the works of organisations like Kick It Out and, you know, the governing bodies, for example, because football has changed for the better. Um, especially just in the short time that I have been playing um, and uh, now that I'm retired, working in football governance. With that then, um, do, you, do you often get reports from people that you've, you've worked with and, and people you're aware of around the, the company of, of incidents still happening within grounds and, and there still being a, a culture of homophobia and racism there? Yeah, one of the things that Kick Out have is an app. So, for example, it's an app to report an incident. So you can have it on your phone and go to a game. And if there's something you see here or would like to, you know, disclose, basically, you can use the app to get that information out. So that incident report, if you like, comes straight to the office. And we would sort of investigate each single incident, each single report with the club in question. So it really gives, you know, us an idea of what's happened on the terraces and, and gives us an idea of what, is being said and the incidents that are happening it's really really been well received and we're hoping that you know as many fans as possible can use the app as a, as a tool if you like to making the game as safe as possible because you know people see and hear loads of things in football and recently fans have been confident enough to sort of you know challenge um, incidents but some people are not not as confident and you know I can totally empathize with that but you know the reporting app just gives everyone that that opportunity to report something you know, they may just feel is, you know, the wrong behaviour, the wrong terminology, but there's a tool and a resource there for them to use. But it happens, you know, it happens, you know, and it happens every single week. Um, to the extent, I think it's very difficult to sort of put down in numbers, but, you know, we're working to really challenge that and try and reduce that, but it's, um, it's a battle that won't happen overnight. From what I understand, you do you do quite a bit of your own work with the clubs themselves. Do they seem like they're they're quite forward thinking now, and this is something with discrimination that they want to be active in in helping eradicate? I think I think yeah. I mean, clubs are really receptive to some of the ideas that we propose, and they're really receptive in you know for us giving them different ways in which they can engage with underrepresented fans, uh, the, the local communities. And for me, that's great because when you get clubs that are receptive, then you can make things happen. 
and sometimes it's just really you know putting um, people in touch with each other we've been across the country to so many community groups that would love the opportunity to to go and watch football but things that stop them are that fear factor you know that the unknown if you like but when we encourage them to go i mean we'd never force anyone to go and watch a football match but you know, it's important that you have things in place so that if people do go for the first time, it's an enjoyable experience. And, and that's what we're trying to do. And I think clubs are really sort of helping us and are on board with that, um, trying to get that positive message, you know, to say, look, come and it's, it's a great environment and just embrace football for what it is. What do you think is the, the biggest opposition to that then? Do you think it's, it's fans in the ground who may be ignorant to, to some of the things that their so-called banter may, may make, feel, make other people in the crowd feel uncomfortable? Or do you think there's a, an institutional level of, of homophobia and racism and sexism within the game? Do you think it's, or do you think it's a combination of the two? I don't think there's any specific reason you could, you could put on it, to be honest. I think it's a combination of a few points and the ones that you've you know, correctly identified. But I think football as a culture you know, has a tradition and... You know, I think going to a football match as a fan, you know, the songs and, and the banter and that camaraderie and that relationship you have with the players. You know, no one wants to take that away from football because that's one of the beautiful things about the game. But I think one thing we have to take into account is that football is changing. Young children, families are now attending games, people from underrepresented communities, different religious groups. And I think it's just important that people are just aware of, you know, something that may seem funny can actually offend others and that in itself would would be a reason for someone not to go you know and I've played in games where it wasn't just individuals but whole stands you know singing songs that would offend certain groups and I think it is changing and I think clubs can help but I think also fans sort of understand that you know the world's changing and you know things that we sing and things that we say does offend people so it's just about having that awareness about what is right and what is wrong but, you know, you don't want to take that thing that's special about football away from the game. No one wants to do that because that's one of the things that makes you know, football great, you know, the songs and the atmosphere. But it's just really having a kind of an awareness about what's right and what's wrong, I think. With that lack of knowledge that some people seem to have with, with what's right and wrong, do you think that's to do with uh, ignorance on their, their behalf of, of matters surrounding them? Or do you think it's some malicious intent behind it? Uh, you know, I'd like to think there is an instance to it, to be honest, but I think there's always a minority that know exactly what they're doing and know exactly what they're saying. But if I have to have my personal opinion, now it's only my personal opinion, I'd say on the whole, I'd say, you know, fans are great, fans are well behaved, and sometimes there is an innocence to it. You know, you can go into some stadiums as a, as a young supporter and you'll hear a song and you'll think it's part of what your club do. It's a song that your club sings. So you'll sing the song, but you actually don't realise the connotations and the ramifications of those those words and those songs. It's, it's part of what you think is the club's you know, tradition. So I think it is necessary that people are not educated, but just understand exactly what the songs mean, exactly what some terminologies mean. And without education, it's pretty hard to do that. You know, I had a fan ring me from... You know, I won't name the club, but he was talking to me about terminology and, and he was talking to me about the fact that he went to school 20 years ago and the words that he used to describe people, he still uses today. But he feels that they may be inappropriate, but no one's ever told him that they are or they aren't. So when he goes to a football match and he was to describe someone, he'd still use the terminology that he's been using all his life. 
Now, is that someone who's malicious or is that an innocence there? Because he's brave enough to sort of talk to me and say, I think I've been using something that offends people. You know, what can I do to make sure that I am using the correct mentality and the correct terminology so I don't offend anyone? So that's that proactive kind of nature that I think, you know, fans do have. And we need to really push to sort of make sure that people realize that, you know, sometimes something as, you know, like a, a song or a word can really offend someone. How much dialogue then is there between your organisation and and fan groups and and the clubs themselves about when you're reported something? Does it do you feed back to the club and do you make them aware that that perhaps there may be this culture of of something being done within a club specific environment that that could be making some people feel uncomfortable or, or could be uh, harmful in some manner, or is it? Or is it something that you deal with more internally and then try to try to get to the grassroots problem in it and, and with your campaigns, that's something you try and, and help there? Uh, to me, from our point of view as the Football Supporters Federation, we try and be as proactive as, as, as possible. You know, we, we try not to tend to be reactive. So if an event happens on Saturday around homophobia, all of a sudden we're going to do a lot of work based on homophobia. We try to do work around all forms of discrimination from the onset. You know, we don't prioritise diversity. One thing's not more important than another. It's about working with as many clubs as possible, with as many fans as possible, all our members and our affiliate members. And, you know, we want to get the right messages out and across to them about working with all forms of discrimination. And if certain clubs want to come to us and say, you know, we'd like to work with disability groups, work around racism, homophobia, then we'll do specific work with those clubs because they might may feel that there may be a specific form of diversity that they want to work closely with. But for us, it's about being proactive, really, and, you know, working with clubs to sort of work on all forms of discrimination and fans, clubs, to make an impact and for it to work, you kind of need everyone to buy into that. Um, because it's that holistic approach and everyone on the same page, really. Do you think then it's something that over time will be achieved? Do you think that discrimination will, can be eradicated within sport? Or do you think, because in society perhaps it's a, it's a reflection of, of who's, in, who's in society as a whole, that, that football is it's indicative of, of that, that, that it will always remain to some level within sport? I think that's totally right. I think we can do as much as we can to reduce the numbers and you know look at the balance, you know, and I think over the years that's definitely happened. You know, you've got now individuals that are, that are happy to challenge other individuals of the same club, fans of the same club. You know, if you hear something, people are now standing up and saying, you know, that's wrong, you know, you shouldn't say that. That would never have happened a few years ago. So there is a definite change that's happening. Honestly, I don't think you can change everyone. Uh, of course not, and you're right. You know, football does, the terraces especially, reflect society, and it may be different at Arsenal to a club, you know, in the north of the country or in the west of the country or in the south of the country. But clubs do reflect, you know, the kind of demographics and what's going on within society. And you're always going to have a minority that will go against the grain and use it for whatever reasons they want to. But I don't think, you know, it's, it's I think it's crazy to sort of assume and, and say that we're going to change everything for the better. I don't think it will ever happen. But, you know, if we can raise awareness and put out the right messages hopefully the majority will be receptive to that do you think then it's a it's a generational thing do you, do you think as, as society moves on with with generations that pass do you think then it will it will become less and less and, and less frequent with with time that passes because from a from a personal perspective from from members of my family who first came to the country in the 60s compared to myself who was born in the 90s 
the level of racism we will have each faced is, is polar opposite to one another. Do you think then in, in 10 years, 20 years down the line, when, when I'm having children and, and they're having their children, do you think it's going to be a completely different landscape altogether? I think it will be different completely, maybe not. But, you know, as you said, with generations, it's, you know, for example, my dad came over from Bangladesh and the stories that he tells me about his personal experiences are quite frightening. And I can't really relate to that because it's been different for me and my two children. It will be different for them. Um, so it has improved as generations go on. But then I don't think you can totally eradicate that. And discrimination and, and racism and other forms of this really sort of horrible, malicious um, kind of you know uh, behavior that you see not just at football clubs but within society it changes it changes forms you know so it's topical it's fashionable to you know choose different um, forms or groups that all of a sudden are, are, are groups that people want to you know be horrible to basically so I don't think it will ever go away but I think you know as as for example my family being from over from Bangladesh as we become part of British culture you know, it's more understood. You know, people understand the reasons why we do the things we do and, and are the way we are. So I think it will definitely improve as generations move on, yes. Now, the work you do with the, the campaigns and everything, if, if somebody felt the need to get involved with anything like that, how would, how would they get in touch with yourself and how would, they, how would they try and be proactive about that? Well, this is the thing. I mean, I'm, I've been working now with a Football Support Celebration for over six months and um, trying to speak to as many clubs, as many community groups, as many fans as possible. And I keep, you know, asking everyone to anyone who's got anything that they want to do around, you know, being a football supporter, raising awareness around the underrepresented groups, the relationships between fans and their clubs, get in contact with me um, at the Football Supporters Federation. My email is anwar.udin at the fsf.org.uk. And it's about finding those individuals that, that want to get involved and do stuff. And that's not just the individuals from the upper, underrepresented communities. It's more powerful that we get you know, existing support groups. For example, we did an event this weekend at a championship club where we had existing support groups to say, look, let's go out into the community. Let's go and find someone who's never been before. And let's host them. Let's take them to a game with us, with an existing supporter, and enjoy the game with us. And, you know... That's quite uh, powerful because it's not a club saying, all right, here's 20 tickets to a group that we've never really worked with before. You know, it's actually doing something with, with a little bit of thought and, um, and that intimate sort of touch, which goes a long way. So anyone who has any ideas across the country about doing anything that they think can raise awareness and promote diversity, you know, please get in contact. And it's, it's about increasing the um, positive stories that you hear about fans because unfortunately a lot of the stories you hear about fans are, are quite negative you know if uh, fans groups and individual fans do some you know unbelievable things which they do and I hear of all the time they're never really in the media because it's not really a story but the minute one fan from a club says something that's racist or homophobic it's all over the national news so what I'm trying to do is use those individual fans that are doing positive things and really trying to promote what they're doing around inclusion and around helping other fans and raising awareness because I think that really needs to be highlighted. In your time working with that then and trying to get those sort of events uh, into place, have you, have you experienced a, a larger a larger response to that? Has there been more and more people wanting to do that? Does there seem to be an appetite from people of, of all different backgrounds to want to achieve that in the long term? 
I think initially, I think you're always going to get more of an appetite and a response from the underrepresented groups that feel that personal experience. You know, I'm an Asian football supporter, I'm a Jewish football supporter, and these are the issues that I'm facing. I want to do something about it. So you, you get that. But for me, I've been quite impressed with, you know, just the general fans that from all over the country, look, what can we do to help? You know, give it, you know, here's an idea. Is this, do you think this will work? For me, that, that's what we need because it shouldn't just be from those underrepresented groups and communities that want to do stuff around, you know, highlighting the, the issues and the barriers that discrimination can sometimes cause. I think it's fantastic when you get, you know, supporters that have been supporting the club for 20 years and would like to embrace a new community or more fans into their stadiums. And I think that's so powerful. So, you know, anyone that is, is happy to sort of work with the FSS around diversity, you know, long term, we're trying to do as much as we can all over the country. Um, thank you very much for your time, Anwar. Um, the work you're doing, I, I can only wish you the best going forward because it's, it's valuable work that, that if it weren't for people like you, we wouldn't have the, the progression in the game that we do. So, so thank you very much for the, the work you do do and thanks for coming on the show. No problem. Really, really appreciate the time. Raj there talking with Anwar Adin of the Football Supporters Federation. To find out more about the organisation, visit FSF org.uk or follow them on twitter at the underscore fsf now last but not least raj speaks with football anthropologist simon cooper a reputed football journalist and author of a number of books including soconomics and football against the enemy he currently writes for the financial times simon welcome to the show thank you very much for giving us your time um, as you're aware, um, we just wanted to, to speak to you about uh, discrimination in football as a whole. It's something that, that you look into in your book, Soconomics, um, specifically towards black managers. Um, can you shed any light on, on the figures that you found during the, the, the process of writing the book about that? Well, we said in the book that until about 1990, you can find wage discrimination against black players, so that black players were earning less than white players of a similar quality. And then from about 1990, that ends because clubs realise that to compete, they have to you know, try and recruit the best black players as well as the best white players, otherwise their team will suffer. So you had a, t a club like Everton, which had a history of never having any black players and Liverpool before them. And so all those clubs move, and of course it reflects a changing society where overt racism is no longer acceptable, and on the terraces as well there's a crackdown on that. And um, it hasn't really worked for managers because I think um, Chris Powell is the only black manager in the entire 92 English professional clubs, if I'm right. There's also um, um, Keith Curl at Carlisle that I was made aware of when I spoke to kick it out, but that's an oversight I made as well. It, I wasn't aware of that whatsoever either. Okay, so three out of 92, whereas, you know, who are managers, they're ex-players, and the proportion of, of players, about 20% are black, so you'd expect to see similar numbers of managers. So clearly there's something going on there. And um, football has been very unwilling to confront or to talk about it. Now, there was the same issue in NFL, American Gridiron Football, and they implemented the Rooney Rule, which means that you don't have to employ black people, but you have to interview them. So if you are looking for a head coach, you know, and you, look, you interview five people, you can't only interview white guys. And just the um, having black people interviewed help their employment prospects, because, of course, in the interview it becomes clear uh, who's 
who's good, who's got ideas for running the club and who doesn't, and skin colour becomes less important. So if you take away that initial hurdle uh, in front of black candidates, uh, that already improves their chances. It might not be enough, but it, it makes a difference. So it seems obvious to me that football should have a Rooney rule to encourage recruitment of black managers, but not yet. It hasn't happened yet. When we um, actually discussed that exact rule with, with the people from Kick It Out, uh, one of they they thought that they should perhaps have a, a version of that, but translating the the exact thing from their game in America to ours wouldn't work because there tends to be a thing with with managers where they'll be man they'll they'll be sacked on a on on one day and the club will have already had in place the the next person behind so they don't really um, they don't really they don't subscribe to employment much. rules yeah so the the yeah. entire interview procedure doesn't really conform to to what you'd expect yeah. in in any other environment so we'd have to. We'd have to re-sculpt that so that it would be a much more, much more organised fashion for for clubs to do that. But it is something I agree with that, that black managers and, and ethnic managers need a chance, as well as female managers as well. We've seen the, the yeah. first few female managers in um, in in France uh, come in this season. Yeah, I think Clermont-Ferrand is the first, and I think so far only club. And actually, also in American sports, a couple of women have been hired as assistant managers i mean um as coaches of specific things and i think that's one route that could work in football for black and female uh, coaches because you can often rise through the ranks so you need to have been an assistant coach first and as you say you know the manager is sacked on on sunday after you lose and on monday there's a new manager so there's isn't really an interviewing process usually but with assistants the process tends to be a bit slower and calmer. So you could have a ruling rule for that, that if you're looking for a goalkeeping coach, for example, you have to interview. And then you you know, you know, end up with a black or female goalkeeping coach or a black or a female assistant coach, and that person then has a better chance of becoming the manager. Because right now in football, they're barred from the very start of the process. Another thing I wanted to discuss with you from a, a journalist standpoint is often the the rhetoric and the, and the words that are used around certain types of players. And, and one thing that I've specifically theorised openly on, on the show previously is the fact that some words like beast and lazy are often attributed to, to black players um, more often than they are to white players. I mean... The one thing that I said to my co-host on a on a, on a recent show was that um, the likes of Yaya Torre and Didier Drogba, Emmanuel Adebayor, they're often called lazy, whereas a white counterpart wouldn't have the same sort of thing attributed to them. Is that something you've experienced in the field yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think there's this uh, historic racist stereotype that you know black people have these amazing bodies, but they don't think as much or work as hard, which of course is a crazy, outdated, idiotic idea. Um, well, it was never correct. But um, you still get it bandied around, and very few people now would say that straightforwardly and overtly. They, they wouldn't make that statement to black, black black people. But when they're talking about a specific person like Ayotore, suddenly all these stereotypes come to the fore. I mean, I, actually, I remember one of the um, statistical people at Manchester City said to me, he said, people say that Yaya Touré is slow and lethargic. He said, you wouldn't say that if you looked at his stats. You know, the guy moves incredibly fast. And so this idea that he, um, he you know, he, he doesn't really give it his all is, is completely false. But I, I'm sure it has to do with racial stereotyping. I remember it first came to the fore in the public discourse at the World Cup 1990 when uh, Cameroon were doing well. 
and the commentators say, oh, he's a wonderful natural athlete. He doesn't really know what he's doing. You know, he's just having fun out there. He's a wonderful natural athlete. And it was said about the West Indian cricketers before, they were Calypso cricketers. The idea was they didn't really think hard or apply themselves, but they just went out there and they had fun and they used their talents and they, you know, hit sixes when things are going well. And the West Indian cricketers as well hated that tag. So these tags have a long history in sports. And I agree that, you know, um, TV producers need to be much more vigilant and uh, warn commentators who use that kind of language and pundits who use that kind of language because it perpetuates these silly stereotypes. Um, an issue that, that we view almost hand-in-hand hand with, with racism in terms of discrimination within the game is the fact that there is a, a level of homophobia that's still around the culture of football. We've only had a, a couple of footballers that have come out post their careers. Nobody has yet, unfortunately, felt the confidence within themselves. Well, there is one uh, the guy who, who quit Leeds and then he went back to play in L.A. Robbie, Robbie Rogers. Yeah, and he seems, uh, last I checked, he was playing for the L.A. Galaxy and doing fine and nobody really cared anymore. So, the the other example is of course Tomal Hitzesberger who who came out openly once he'd he'd quit and he'd played for uh, Premier League clubs like uh, Aston Villa, West Ham, and Everton, but he he obviously wasn't comfortable enough to do that while he was in the spotlight in the game itself. Do you think that there needs to be that that breakthrough moment with with one player, and do you think that will will help in the long run that there will be somebody at a household name who is openly homosexual who is a a top line um, professional footballer? Um, I mean, the way it's going to happen is that younger people, teenagers, etc., often aren't in the closet anymore. Um, so they come out, you know, in their teens, and if they're good athletes, then by the time they reach professional sport, age 18 or whatever, they, um, you know, they, they, there's not a matter of hiding their sexuality because everyone who knows them knows that they're gay. And I think Michael Sam, who was an American football player who's, who's actually struggled to... He had a great college career. He was openly gay, and he um, he struggled to find a club, perhaps due to homophobia, perhaps not. You know, of course, it might just be he's not good enough. But that's the way it's going to happen more and more in in soccer as well. I mean, the thing is, though, if you're a teenager who is homosexual, then you can find soccer a very unwelcoming environment. You know, historically with the kind of uh, homophobic banter, as they like to think of it. So those kinds of kids might be discouraged from, you know, playing a lot of soccer and becoming good footballers. So that could be an issue as well. But I think that, you know, the younger generation is obviously much less homophobic. So I think that in 10 years' time, this is going to start to be a bit antiquated. The other thing is that one reason, I mean, Robbie Rogers talks about it, is it's very hard to be a gay footballer, is you're worried about the abuse from the stands, you know, which can be horrible and deeply personal. And, of course, that was a problem that black footballers faced in the 80s and very successfully in Britain we cracked down on it so now if you know get an idiot shouting racist abuse at the black footballer the idiot he loses his season ticket and you could do the same with homophobia and I suspect that's going to be the next step I mean if you look at the changing climate on gays um, gay marriage being an indicator of that I think that that's going to be the next frontier for football that it's going to do for gay people what it did for black people 30 years ago so it's not going to be perfect but it's going to be a lot better than it is now you you've touched on when you've been speaking about the fact that there's this um this culture of banter used loosely as a term and the fact that there'll be a pressure on on television producers on on cracking down on on the rhetoric that's used to describe certain players do you think then from a from a journalist standpoint that there's a an industry-wide um sort of duty of care that they have to almost lead from the front and, and, and promote a, a better 
a better a better view of of both black players and, and racism and homophobia in the game, and it's it's an industry that that can influence that positively. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you know we in the media have a small soapbox. We can play a, a small role, and in. If you look at how the climate changed for black footballers, it, you know, it was partly the media and it was also partly players. So David Beckham would get very angry as England captain when, you know, English players, black players were abused in abroad, in matches abroad. So if you have all sorts of people leading that charge, it can make a difference. I mean, I write for the Financial Times and I don't think that we have this huge role in changing the culture of football. I wish it were so, but I don't think we do. I mean, more importantly... Um, then what I write, I'm thinking of Louis van Gaal, who, you know, of course, he's got the biggest managerial job in English football. And earlier this year, he was on the boat at the Gay Pride Parade in Amsterdam. Um, the Dutch Football Association had a boat in the Gay Gay Pride Parade, which is on the canals of Amsterdam. And Louis van Gaal was the most prominent person on it, which is fantastic. So that kind of thing will make a difference as well, the, the van Gaals, the Beckhams. With the, the, the whole... The atmosphere around it and the the, um, the wide spectrum of it a whole. Do, do you think it's something that will come around? Do you think it will be something that you say in ten years' time we will look back on and we'll not laugh at, but we'll we'll look down on ourselves and we'll, we'll wonder how we ever allowed ourselves to 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 behave in the manner we do? Or do you think it's something that will take a much longer time and it won't be something that we'll be able to to eradicate completely because it's not something we'll ever be able to eradicate completely from society. Can eradicate behaviour quite effectively because a football stadium is a very closed environment. You know who's sitting on which seats, um, and you have CCTV cameras everywhere. And now you have people reporting, you know, abusive fans to the stewards. So I think you can eradicate it. I mean, there really isn't much uh, anti-black abuse and bananas being thrown onto the field in Premier League football. And when it happens, it's a huge incident, rightly so, and, you know, the perpetrators are identified. So you could do the same with um, homophobic abuse. It's, it's actually quite easy. And to me, that would make an immense difference. You see, I don't really care so much what people think about black people or gays or Jews or whatever. They're just not allowed to act on it. And they're not allowed to state it uh, in public in these places because it creates a poisonous environment that nobody likes. So I'm all for eradicating behavior. And, of course, once you eradicate behavior, then people's thoughts tend to follow. You know, if everybody agrees and there's messages being sent by leading people in football that anti-black or anti-gay abuse is horrible and stupid, then uh, that tends to change the way people think. So, yeah, I think we will look back and wonder. I mean, I remember about 20 years ago, watching a Scottish game on TV with Mark Walters, as I recall, playing for Rangers, black player, and seeing bananas being thrown at him from the stands. And already then in England that was becoming, you know, um, that was being eradicated from the English game. And I was sitting there thinking, this is incredible. I can't believe I'm seeing this. This is such a vile and unpleasant moment. And I would never want to be at that match. You know, it would give me zero pleasure to be at that match. I remember watching an England-Holland game on TV in a pub in London in 1993. And this guy, you know, there's a bunch of people watching in the pub. And this one guy was making racist abuse uh, at John Barnes, whenever John Barnes had the ball. And he was a guy from an office. And his office mates were laughing, kind of chuckling, giggling with him, you know, naughty boy, whenever, whenever he made these monkey noises. And I thought, I'm going to go out and find a policeman and get him to arrest this guy. And then I thought the policeman wouldn't care. And everybody would say, where's your sense of humor then? Where's your sense of humor? And that's what the thing, that's what the mood was like in a lot of football watching culture 20 years ago. That's gone now, I think.
With the, the abuse that still exists, do you think it's, it's that born out of, of ignorance and, and people getting caught up within themselves in the environment of football rather than any sort of malicious behaviour? I mean, I, I find it deeply malicious. Um, I mean, look, Britain is a country where a party which is deeply anti-immigrant, which, as we know, is often a, a thin veil for racism, is uh, storming up the polls and where the uh, main governing party of the Conservatives feel has to match that rhetoric. Uh, it's not that this is a problem only in football. I mean, um, fear and dislike and distrust of uh, other ethnicities is, um, is a society-wide problem. And, I mean, I think there is a... Uh, there is a vein in football fandom that, you know, you can say what you like, it's football, it's fun, it's a moment of release, you know, you can shout abuse at anyone and it's it's your moment to be free and therefore racist abuse is part of that. I do think there is that kind of stupidity about the banter, but I also think it's linked to uh, people are people are racist, a lot of people are racist. Okay, then. If, if, if what would you think the the prerogative is with the football clubs then to to take the lead with this inside and police the the matters better inside the grounds and and be much more fair with their their employment process and things rather than the people in the, the stands if if the clubs take the lead will the the people in the stands follow yeah i mean if the club says we have zero tolerance towards homophobia so that if a fan is found making a homophobic remark or chance or whatever, we take a season ticket and we tear it up and he's gone forever, just like with um, racist abuse. And if the clubs say we are conscious that our entire managerial staff is white and has always been white and we're going to do something about that, not least because we're missing out on a lot of talent, uh, I think that will make a difference. I, I think that actually solving these problems inside football is not so difficult. I think those those two measures... A zero tolerance and homophobia in the stands and uh, a real effort to recruit black people and women into coaching posts. Because, I mean, the whole industry forever, since the beginning of time, has discriminated illegally against women. The fact that there are zero uh, female football managers in the whole of English football history. It's just a scandal. I mean, you know, if I were an employment lawyer, I, I would take this to court. I think that's that's everything we needed to ask you, Simon. Thank you very much for your time. Um, if anybody wanted to, to find your work or, or read one of your books, where, where would the best place to, to find that? Uh, if you could direct them to my Amazon page, uh, I mean, if you go to Amazon.co.uk and you you type, I'm doing that right now, Simon Cooper, you, you have a page with all my books on it. That's excellent. Thanks very much for your time, Simon. Uh, OK, cheers. Thanks very much, Rachel. So you're back down to earth with a, with a bump now, Raj, having to speak to the likes of me after such an illustrious cast. But uh, no, no, I mean, all jokes aside, mate, it's a, it's a sterling effort there and some really, really insightful stuff. Um, I guess it was just kind of to, to switch over to you now and just kind of gauge what it was that you were hoping to get from this podcast and your, your kind of general motivation behind getting this off the ground. I think when we, we both spoke about it beforehand, the main intention was for it not to be based around our opinion and to get the, the expert opinion um, of, of people from various different companies and, and various different fields and to not ask them any sort of leading questions, to not prep them too much. I mean, the first time I ever spoke to, to all of them was when you hear it on the audio. Um, the only thing you literally don't hear is me saying hello and introducing myself beforehand. So it's it's as clean a um, interview as you, you'll hear. Um, I, I can't thank them enough for coming on, but it was just a, 
It was just an exploration of the the subject area because, as you said, it's, it's something we've both touched upon in various different formats and, and on the podcast it's come to the fore and to to ask the questions that we've been asking each other but to ask them to people who are who work in that industry uh, day in day out and to get their opinion um it's just a it's just a way of kind of making sure that we're not presenting our own opinion but it's it's fact from the people who, who are in the best position to give it out yeah that's a very well put point, mate. And uh, I think most of all, we can kind of take from from the whole experience. Uh, it shows you that, you know, for anyone that says, oh, it's it's just a game and we're all just here to to watch Spurs or whoever else. It's, it's just, you know, it's simply not the truth that sport has such a far-reaching impact that it can affect change in society. And there's plentiful examples of that. So all the work by all of these organisations is extremely important and it's a credit to, to all who are involved. Um, so, yeah, I'll leave it at that. And just to say that you can listen to all the previous episodes of Rulery's podcast on the uh, Spurs Statman website, which is spursstatman.com, and follow us on Twitter at RTRSSM. Hope you've enjoyed listening to this. Um, and, yeah, you can, you can tune in to any of our usual drivel that we put out from this point forth. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.